We are in Romans chapter 5. If you take your Bibles and turn there with me. Last Sunday, we were able to teach through the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5. And I hope that you'll recall, if you were here, that there were three blessings for justification in the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Let me review, though. Justification is God's work of declaring sinners righteous because of Christ. That's justification. If you're saved, you are justified. We saw three blessings to being justified in the first 11 verses of Romans 5. Number one, we have peace with God. Number two, we have the hope of grace. Number three, we have praise for God. Peace with God is blessing one. Hope of grace is blessing two of justification. And then under the hope of grace, we talked about future glory, no wrath in, the, in judgment, free access to God, spiritual growth in times of trouble, and a deep sense of God's love for us when we are in times of trouble. And then by way of review, the third blessing of justification is praise for God. So that's what we saw last week. Justification's blessings, peace with God, hope of grace, praise for God. Now, as we continue through chapter 5, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, we're going to move from justification's blessings to justification's consistency. That God, in declaring you innocent, although you are a sinner, because of Christ, is consistent with God's character and with humankind's problems. God's justification is consistent. Specifically, these verses in chapter 5 are going to contrast Adam to Christ. They are going to contrast Adam to Christ, and the verses are going to show us both the justice of God and the consistency of God that Adam's sin was imputed to us but that Christ's righteousness can be imputed to us as believers. The word imputed might be new or not one you use in everyday life, but it simply means to impute is to assign or to credit or to pass along. So these verses are going to contrast Adam and Christ and show the consistency of God in justifying the believer in Christ. I want to read all of the verses so you get the flow, and then we'll come back and look at it in a little more detail. I'm reading at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of God of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, 
But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through, through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As you look at your sermon outline sheets, the half sheets in your bulletin, pull those out. As you look at that half sheet, you will see a table or a chart that has three columns. The left column is what is true about Adam. The right column is what is true about Christ. And the center column are the various points of comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ. Now, before we start to go down these columns in detail, which we will, before we look at the left and the right columns, the first thing I want us to notice is that the idea of verse 12 is not finished until the second half of verse 18. The idea that was introduced in verse 12 is not resumed until the first part of verse 18. This means that verses 13 through 18a are an inspired digression. Why would the Holy Spirit move Paul to write a digression from what's being argued because the Holy Spirit in these bracket verses, 13 through 18a, is telling us of the universality of sin. You cannot sit here accurately and say, I'm really not a sinner. Donald Trump has said, I'm a Presbyterian, but I can't recall a time I've ever has to have to ask God for forgiveness. Verses 13 through 18a are an inspired digression to explain the universality of sin. So let me begin at verse 12, and then we'll skip to where the argument continues in verse 18. I'm only going to read verses 12 and 18 at this point. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, middle of 18, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Let me go back to verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and I'll pull up there at the hyphen, when sin 
came into the Garden of Eden, so did death. God connected sin to death from the very outset. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Say that with me. You will surely die. God linked transgression that had not even happened yet to death. So, when Adam and Eve fell, all of their descendants fell with them into sin. Such that all babies born after Adam and Eve, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, down the line to your children, all children inherit, are born with a sin nature. Only one born of a woman not to inherit a sin nature was Jesus Christ because he was virgin born. That's the point of the virgin birth. There was no sperm from a man to pass on a sin nature to a baby. That's the whole point of the virgin birth. And so when the psalmist David in Psalm 51 came to grips with his sin with Bathsheba, in verse 5 of the 51st Psalm, he makes reference to the inheritance, the perpetuity of a tendency to sin being passed along to all people. And in Psalm 51.5, he wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now that is not teaching that marital Intimacy is sin in God's eyes. God invented marital intimacy. It's a blessing in a marriage. But it is saying that David understood from the moment he was conceived, he got a sin nature and a tendency to rebel against God. A New Testament teaching of the same is in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Listen. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is saying that by nature human beings are deserving of God's wrath. Because by nature, our default position is to rebel against God. Doubt that? How many of you had to teach your little child to say, no. We have to teach our children to say yes. Every child comes factory installed with the default position of no toward their parents, but toward God. Little humans come factory loaded 
with a bent to sin. And since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, we all have personal sin. We all have positional sin. We all have inherent sin, and we all have imputed sin. We're in trouble. And so looking at the first line in your charts, in your outlines, in the Adam column, you see Adam's disobedience ushered in sin to the human race. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. Before God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, sin was already in the world. Of course it was. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. That is to say, sin is not charged as being a specific violation of a rule before the law of God established the rules. That being said, sin was still, and sin paid its wage of death between Adam and Moses when the law was given. Romans 6.23, you know it. For the wages, the paycheck of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how do we know that sin still paid its wage prior to the giving of the law to Moses? All the physical deaths that happened from Adam to Moses. All the graves that were opened and people buried in because they died. Tons of people died before the law was given. In fact, all the people on earth died in the global flood except the family Noah of eight persons. So what does it mean in verse 13? For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed. This is an illustration. I use all these speeding illustrations in my life. You know, all these illustrations of me driving too fast. I guess I, guess I have to admit that my right foot is the last part of me to be sanctified. <laughs> if a person is speeding... Clearly, but there is no police officer, no radar trap to catch the person who is speeding and breaking the law. He's still breaking the law. He just didn't get caught. People were disobeying God's character and ways and personhood before the law was ever given. They just weren't given a label as to how they transgressed. Covetousness. Lust. Thievery, blasphemy. Let's skip down to verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Notice here that even through, even through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Does that teach that everybody's saved? No. This is not universalism, that everyone gets to heaven if they just have a pulse. It doesn't teach that. All here is all who believe in Christ. All here is all who believe in Christ. 
Compare verse 17's phrase, those who receive, and also compare John 9, verse 13. So in verse 18, when it says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, there all means all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all who would believe in Jesus. All of them. You know, Jesus came to reveal God when he came the first Christmas to teach about God, to do God's works, to live out God's perfect character. And he said many things in the Gospel of John, but I want to give you just verses 9 to 13 of chapter 1. Listen. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. This is Jesus, of course. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is the Jews. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Oh, to receive him is to believe in his name. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, not everyone's going to be saved. Only believers in Jesus Christ will be saved. Now on to verse 19 in our passage of Romans 5. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Theologians have a way of describing this theological truth. And theologians teach that Adam was our federal head. Say that with me, federal head. Again, federal head. Head. Adam is mankind's federal head, the judicial representative of all humans after him. Federal head. One of the things I appreciate about the Bahamas is the British heritage that is in this country. As a Canadian, I became acquainted with the British heritage as found in Canada. And we know, don't we, that the Governor General, Dame Marguerite Pindling, represents the Queen in the Bahamas. She is the federal head of the Queen in the Bahamas. She represents the Queen. But she also is a head of the Bahamian citizens insofar as if there are Matters that the queen should know about and speak to, the governor general goes to have an audience with Queen Elizabeth II and brings those concerns to the queen. Adam is our federal head insofar as the transmission of sin to all people. Therefore, when Adam, our federal head, sinned, all of us fell into sinning too. Is this logical? Is this fair? Well, let me ask you something. Where were you 10 months before you were born? 10 months before you were born. 
Where were you 50 years before you were born? Where were you 1,000 years before you were born? Where were you 6,000 years before you were born? You were in Adam. We all were in Adam. Before any of us was conceived, we were in Adam by birth. And so Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are now in Christ, not in Adam. So whatever happened to Jesus Christ happened to us when we were placed into Christ. Christ was crucified. We were co-crucified with Christ. Christ was buried. The old you was buried with Christ. Christ was resurrected to newness of life. You've been resurrected to newness of life if you're in Christ. Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see what's happening here? Adam used to be your federal head, but if you're born again, your new federal head is Christ. Praise God. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. You don't have the Son this morning. You don't have eternal life. But you could have it if you believe on him. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. One more passage, Titus 3, 3 to 7. We're seeing that Adam is the federal head of a humanity of sinners. Christ is the federal head of righteousness for a company of believers in him for salvation. Titus 3, 3 to 7. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But, one of the best words of Scripture, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the watching of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Adam was our federal head in sin. Christ is our federal head in redemption. We got our sin problem through Adam, we get our righteousness solution in Christ. And how do we get to be in Christ by rebirth? Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again, Jesus said to Nicodemus. So it is fair. The imputation of sin from Adam is fair. The imputation of sin through Adam is logical. Adam, again, is our federal head when it comes to sin, and Christ can become our federal head when it comes to imputed righteousness. Justification is consistent. So let's look at this a little more closely by considering the Adam and Christ contrast in your table or chart in your, in your outlines, okay? Look at the center column. His deed. Well, Adam's deed was disobedience. But Christ's deed was obedience. 
center column. His deed affected. Adam's deed affected all, while Christ's deed affected many. He introduced, well, Adam introduced sin and death, while Christ introduced grace and eternal life. His deed resulted in, Adam's deed resulted in judgment and condemnation and a reign of death, making us subjects to death, while Christ's deed resulted in forgiveness and justification and a reign of life, making us co-rulers in life. Our federal head by, Adam is our federal head by birth. If you're born, and every one of us was born, Adam became our federal head. Christ is our federal head through rebirth. If you have been born again, Jesus Christ is now your federal head of righteousness. What a chapter. Justification's blessings in the first 11 verses, those blessings are peace with God, the hope of grace, and praise for God. Today, verses 12 to 21, justification's consistency, Adam, federal head of sin, Christ, federal head of imputed righteousness. And so I ask you a simple question with far-reaching implication. Are you justified? Are you justified? If you have to say no, then you need to be saved. And not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. You might not have any of those things. You need to be saved this morning. And here's how a person is saved. They tell God from their heart that they have blown it and sinned. They tell God that they can't make themselves right with God. They tell God that they believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of their sins. They tell God that they believe the scriptures that say Jesus Christ lived again after dying. And they tell God they want to turn from sin and entrust in Christ alone be saved. Make that your prayer if you've never done it before. Move out from Adam being your federal head to Christ being your federal head. You say, Pastor, you're asking me the question, am I justified? And you just explained to people who may be here who had to answer no. What about me? I know I'm justified. What difference should all this make to me? I know I'm justified by Christ. Well, here's the difference that ought to make. If the person without it answer is be saved, the justified person, the answer for you is be true. Be true to your new federal head. Be true to Christ. Be true to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Live a thank you kind of life back to him. This is not a true story, but I want you to imagine that you live in a very, very remote village in a jungle somewhere. 
very uncivilized, never seen the outside world. Imagine you live in that village. And imagine that the practice of that village is to eat certain foods that are terrible for the tribe's people's health. Foods that raise cholesterol, foods that cause high blood pressure, foods that cause heart disease and strokes. And you've lived all your life in this village. And you've seen person after person after person have strokes and die of heart attacks. It's common. And then a missionary medical doctor comes to your remote village. And he starts teaching the tribe's people in that village about proper diet and the things that are good to eat and the things that are not good to eat. And then the doctor sees the heart disease and the prevalence of heart attack, and he has to do all kinds of heart surgeries. And he saves people's lives. And then he comes to understand that he can only be in that village for one month. And then he has to go. And I want you to imagine that he takes you aside when he knows he has one month and he starts teaching you about anesthetic, about scalpels, about cleanliness in surgeries, about the anatomy of the heart and arteries. And in those few weeks, he pours his medical expertise and training into you. What do you do with that after he leaves? He is imputed to you as much as he could to meet the needs of your people in that village. He has credited your thinking and your skill set with even how to do a heart surgery. What do you do when he leaves? You care for the people in your tribe to the best of your ability. You remember what the surgeon told you, and you use it every day. You train your tribesmen not to eat the bad food, and you check their blood pressure often, and you listen to their symptoms of a heart attack before it happens, and you cut them open when they need to be cut open, and you save their lives. You live out what's been imputed to you by the doctor. Church, we have been imputed with Christ's righteousness. It's not theory. We walk through these doors to live righteously. We would be just as blasphemous as the tribesmen who learned to do heart surgery who said, well, I won't do it. It's a little, little much work. We would be blasphemous to God if we've been given all of Christ's righteousness, and we have, and we don't live righteously in our marriages, and we don't live righteously in our workplaces, and we don't live righteously in our neighborhoods, and we don't live righteously on our vacations off the island. We would be just as blasphemous as the man who was trained by the doctor, and he wouldn't do the medicine. Oh, may this be a call far beyond intricate, complicated theological teaching, but may we put into our lives, 
into our purses if we're ladies, into our wallets if we're men. May we take away from this sermon that we have been given Christ's righteousness. It's time to live righteously. I'll leave that with you and the Lord because he's the best one to remind you and to give you the determination to live righteously. Lord, we thank and praise you for justification's consistency. How grateful we are that although undeserving, you have given us Jesus Christ as our federal head. Oh, Lord, may we live righteously because we've been made righteous in him. Bless my friends. Bless the incredible body of Christ to the end that we would live righteously until we see Jesus face to face. And we pray together and God's people said, amen.